Understanding the identity of behemoth in the Bible has been a question almost as long as I, Moses, have been alive. Today we speak with young earth creationist, dinosaur expert, and biblical writer Marcus Ross to help us understand who or what this great behemoth truly was. Was it a dinosaur, hippo, or maybe even something sinister? Find out on this episode of What Your Pastor Didn't Tell You. Hello, everyone. This is What Your Pastor Didn't Tell You. Today, I have Dr. Marcus Ross, the great paleontologist, young earth creationist, extraordinary of all things Bible on today. So how are you doing today, Dr. Ross? Fantastic. Thanks very much for having me on, Zach. It's a pleasure to be back. Oh, this is great. So today, we're going to be talking about behemoth and what it is what your thought your thoughts are and just how we're supposed to understand the the great little uh the creature the the dinosaur more or less for people not aware of your work can you give you know people your background obviously you're a dinosaur expert so you're the perfect person to talk to you about this right um, but um, among other things so uh, just give us your your background here Sure. Well, uh, by by training, I am a vertebrate paleontologist, so I studied animals that have backbones. And uh, yes, I did study dinosaurs a, a good bit in my uh, graduate work. I got into paleontology because of my passion for dinosaurs that started when I was you know, just a wee little kid at the age of four. Um, my particular area of study during my uh, PhD was actually in the group of animals called mosasaurs, which are some of the big marine swimming reptiles. Uh, that are featured on like one page out of all of those dinosaur books, right? Um, but uh, along the way, uh, dinosaurs were were definitely one of the things that I paid a lot of attention to. In fact, I got into mosasaurs because in my master's program, nobody was doing work on dinosaurs. So I was like, all right, what else is big and lizardy and has a lot of teeth and, you know, eats whatever it wants. So mosasaurs became a, an area of interest for me. Um, and uh, I taught paleontology, geology, earth science, and creation studies at Liberty University from 2005 to 2021. I was the fossils and rocks guy uh, there on campus, worked with the Center for Creation Studies as its assistant director. And then from 2017 to 2021, I was the director of the Center for Creation Studies. Um, since 2021, I stepped down from teaching full-time and I run Cornerstone Educational Supply, which is a company that produces science materials for homeschoolers, colleges, high schools. Basically, my wife likes to say we're the stuff people. When your curriculum says go get some stuff and do some science, yeah, right. we got the stuff. Uh, so frogs and fossils and everything in between. Um, my passion for the Bible started much like dinosaurs very young. I became a Christian probably sometime around the age of five or six. I don't really remember when I, I asked Jesus mm -hmm. to be Lord and Savior. So of course I asked it a bunch more times in the intervening years just to make sure that it took. Um, but um, that meant that very early on, I remember being as young as nine, realizing that there was a, uh, a conflict between what the, what the dinosaur books were saying about dinosaurs living hundreds of millions of years ago and what I at least thought the Bible was telling me about uh, creation according to six days and what seemed to be a, a recent setting for that creation only a few thousands of years ago. So my interest in the creation evolution conflict in particular goes way back to when I was just a little kid, um, but really ramped up when I got into college and started um, you know, delving into this issue much more deeply because I wanted to be a paleontologist. And, and it meant that I needed to kind of sort out what I thought also as a Christian, my Mm -hmm. perspective on the Bible happened to be about these things. Hmm. Very cool. All right. And you've also written a few 
I don't know how many you actually have written uh, scholarly articles and journals, whatever, about the, the global or local or whatever Noah's flood. Mm -hmm. And uh, you're coming out with a new book. Tell people about that. Oh, uh, yeah. So I, I've written uh, chapters about uh, young earth creationism or young earth views of fossils and things like the uh, Dictionary of Christianity and Science from Zondervan. So if somebody's got that tome uh, hanging around or in the library, you can find a couple of entries uh, from me on that. Uh, I've done a lot of work within young earth creationism within you know that particular area of trying to work out understandings of fossils, flood geology, things of that nature. Um, in interacting outside of young earth creationism, um, you mentioned a, a forthcoming book. So in uh, August of 2024, uh, Broadman and Holman will publish Perspectives on the Historical Adam and Eve, an Evangelical Conversation. And I'm one of four authors uh, alongside uh, Dr. Kenton Sparks, who's an Old Testament scholar, um, William Lane Craig, noted philosopher uh, and Christian apologi apologist, uh, Andrew Loke, also a uh, philosopher, and myself. So we represent a spectrum of pers perspectives everywhere from um, Adam is uh, myth mythological and the Bible is errant on the side of, say, Kenton Sparks, through um, Bill Craig's mytho-historical view. Uh, Andrew Loke takes a genealogical Adam perspective, and I'm representing a young earth creation perspective. So that book's, uh, you know, it's it's a fun thing because it's like a debate in a book. It's those series like Zondervan has yeah. and, and or IVP has and B&H have. Um, so we get a chance to interact with one another, to challenge each other, to receive criticisms. And uh, we were just at uh, ETS in November of 23 uh, doing this you know, presentation and taking Q&A from the audience. It was a really, really fun time. Really enjoyed it. Mm -hmm. Awesome. Yeah, no, that'll be really exciting to read. So, uh, you know, Behemoth, can you give people just general ideas of what people think Behemoth is? Okay, so we're we're here to talk about behemoth in the book of Job. And behemoth is a word that we find elsewhere in the Bible. The first time that we see it is actually on the first page in, in Genesis 1, where God creates the beasts. And the, the word there is behemoth, which is actually singular. It's weird. Uh, behemoth is used in Genesis 1 as a singular to talk about a lot of animals. And in Job, it's a plural form, behemoth, that's used to talk about one. So really kind of interesting how that gets kind of crossed or, or and what have right. you. But in the book of Job, uh, in chapter 40, what we have is God coming to Job and in his second speech after Job basically says, you know, I don't deserve all this. God comes and speaks to Job. His first speech is about the basics of, of, in, of inanimate creation, then some animals. Then in the second speech, he talks about behemoth and Leviathan, these two creatures. And uh, behemoth is some type of land-dwelling creature. Uh, that's being referred to here. It, uh, it's something that eats grass like an ox. It does live in like the streams and stuff like that, but it also is is clearly kind of a land-dwelling type of creature. So that's at least within one of the, the categories of how people look at behemoth. Uh, people usually look at behemoth and leviathan either as real creatures or some type of mythological or, or kind of chaos creature. So there's kind of these two different trajectories in which behemoth and leviathan are understood and through the through the centuries of the church we can see both of those uh in play so it's not like one of them is mm. completely novel and the other one is ancient they're both fairly ancient although probably real creature has a longer pedigree or at least a more consistent pedigree um in uh the writing of the christian church 
Yeah. Yeah. No, the, when you get to those Jewish works, things get weird for sure. They can. Especially about, yeah. <laughs> so, uh, uh, um, maybe in pe people, some, you know, people like the word myth, obviously, because it can to like untrue or, you know, um, you know, I, I don't like that distinction, of course, because right. in, in the biblical text, if like the scholars that say, oh, that's a myth, they, it's, it's often, it's even truer than true. It's, but you know, it, another word is symbolic. So, mm -hmm. you know, maybe a better word for that isn't symbolic, not that I'm correcting you, but you know, the, yeah. the, the connotations behind it. Um, so that is the, you know, myth, uh, you know, or true. Uh, what about like the differing views on like, if it is a, like a, I guess, a historical, if you want to use that, the word historical creature, like a dinosaur, hippo, mm -hmm. uh, what, what else other ideas are out there? Yeah, well, looking through the, the history of uh, Christian thought on that, um, we can see that probably earliest on people equated elephant with uh, behemoth. Uh, we see huh. some some writings fairly soon after the New Testament uh, and some early Jewish writings around the same time or perhaps even earlier where the word behemoth is definitely being used for elephants. Um, and so there's that's OK, because, again, the word behemoth means kind of like beast or animal oftentimes cattle, but it can be non-domestic. But mm -hmm. but we do have at least some interesting in instances where elephants are referred to as behemoth without like further clarification. Um, and so that's probably the way that the early church perspective, uh, perspective was on it. We see that uh, as the perspective, for example, of Thomas Aquinas. Uh, he equates uh, behemoth with an elephant. But this whole system kind of changes pretty substantially in uh, 1663, I think that it is. Um, yeah, 1663 with Samuel Boucher's uh, work called um, Hierozoicon. Uh, so it's a it's a zoological treatise. And in Hierozoicon, he makes the argument that behemoth is a hippo instead of an elephant, uh, especially talking about things like the fact that it's in the streams, it's hanging out in the shade under the lotus trees and things like that. Um, and you know, there's no mention of something like a big trunk or large ears or huge tusks. The sort of, the sort of classification bits and, and characters you'd expect if somebody was describing an elephant don't really seem to be there. So he says it's a hippopotamus. Uh, in that book, he also equates Leviathan with crocodile. And from that point on, we see that view is really the dominant one across Christendom, uh, that we've got hippopotamus and a and a crocodile as these chief creatures that God is using mm. to instruct um, Job. And so that mm. pretty much carries carries the day until we start seeing, especially among critical scholars of the German camp in the latest 1800s, beginning of the early 1900s with uh, English writers as well, start to say that these are uh, chaos creatures, uh, mythological in in the good sense of the term. That these are these are organisms that reflect uh, cosmic enemies uh, that God must defeat, uh, but are not real flesh and blood types of creatures that Job was actually interacting with or seeing. And running then, hmm. yeah, that that view doesn't kind of make much of an impact into evangelicalism until probably really about the last fifteen to twenty years. You start to see uh, some evangelicals writing in on this, and it's it's been picking up. So you can see uh, John Walton's commentary uh, on Job, for example, pulls in the the view that the ancient Near Eastern worldview is a is part and parcel of all of this, and so God is using these chaos agents 
um, as the examples of him being able to defeat them. Um, and you see that with uh, Eric Ortland's uh, really good book um, on, on Job called Piercing Leviathan um, and, and several others. So there, there begins to be this kind of trajectory within a certain side of evangelicalism that is going towards, no, these are ancient Near Eastern creatures. Now, running parallel to all of this in the 20th and 21st century is what young earth creationists are saying about this, which is that behemoth is uh, very clearly and very obviously a dinosaur. So um, you've got some saying it's very clearly and obviously a hippo, others saying it's very clearly and obviously a chaos creature, <laughs> others saying it's very clearly a dinosaur. Um, and that's coming from some of the logic of young earth creationism in that if the world is young and God created dinosaurs on the sixth day, some of them were taken on board the ark, then by the time Job is alive, which is probably somewhere around the time of the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, then they think it's quite possible that there could still be dinosaurs around and God would use that as instructive. And they point out other anatomical features that are better suited to dinosaurs than they are to things like hippos or elephants. We'll talk about some mm -hmm. of those in a little bit. Mm. Um, and uh, Leviathan might be assigned to some dinosaur or a mosasaur or anything else, giant crocodiles. We have stuff in the fossil record where we've got 40, 45 foot long crocodilians that they're terrifying creatures uh, eating dinosaurs uh, by the by the riversides. So um, what, what kind of, you know, before we get too too deep into the whole dinosaur thing, we're, we'll get there. But um, I, I am kind of surprised sometimes at how specific some young earth creationists are at what they think, not only is it a dinosaur, but they're going to pick a particular one and say, oh, it's very clearly this. And you go, as, as a paleontologist, they go, whoa, really? Uh, well, might want to pump the brakes. Uh, a few times uh, on this. I prefer maybe anti-lock breaks uh, before we get too far in the skid. Okay, well, no, I'm really interested to hear about that. I mean, obviously, I understand the idea. I mean, on one hand, it's like, I think there's a, a you know, you, you do have a lot of people where they're like, hey, I want to prove young earth creationism true. And if we have a dinosaur in the Bible, when these biblical writers are living, like that's some pretty good evidence of a young earth because these these dinosaurs are supposed to have died a long time ago. Um, yeah. So there's, there's, uh, there's a little bit of a motivation there, but there's also some justification there in, in the description of it. Um, maybe we'll, we'll talk about that. Um, because like, you know, some of these ideas of like a hippo or a or a crocodile just don't seem to fit the description um, to, to some people at least. Um, so it's like, what do you do there? But um, no, that's really interesting. So um, Mosasaur, right? That's mm -hmm. is that the one, the big neck and the long, long tail? Uh, actually, that would be the one that you would recall if you saw Jurassic World. Uh, the three Jurassic mm -hmm. World movies have that big marine reptile in it. And uh, they typically have fairly long heads, short necks, long body, and a very long tail that skulls back and forth like a crocodilian. Now, they're actually lizards. They're true lizards. They're more similar to skinks and Komodo dragons than they are huh. to dinosaurs or, or um, crocodiles or anything like that. Uh -huh. um, fairly similar to snakes in a lot of ways. So uh, that's the type of animal uh, that is the mosasaur. Uh, they're pretty generalist predators for the most part. There's a few that are specialized, some that eat only fish and are like pursuit predators. They're running after schools of fish. Most of them were more like your great whites that are gonna lurk down, look at stuff up and then come as fast as they can up, you know, breaching and eating. They do that in Jurassic World. You know, they kill the secretary. Uh, and, and I felt oh, really bad. I didn't think that she deserved that. That, that, that was rude, <laughs> that, that was really rude. 
Um, whereas uh, some of the other Mosasaurs even had like these big onion-shaped teeth that, that they used as like ball-peen hammers and they went and they ate clams mm. uh, down on the bottom of the seabed. So they're, mm. they're a really interesting group. They've got about 40 different genera, but um, not dinosaurs, marine lizards uh, that crazy oh, are dead. <laughs> life would be not fun with them around. Interesting. Okay. So yeah, I, I'm, I'm clearly not up to date with young earth creationist literature here. Um, so, or paleontology in general, but I, I always assumed that most young earth creationists or most young earth creationists that thought it was a dinosaur would have said it was the, that's, is it the Brachiosaurus? Is that what it's called? Or the sauropod? Sure. Yeah. The long necked one. So the, um, the vast, mm -hmm. uh, and, and you're right, uh, the vast majority of young Earth creationists, uh, especially uh, all the big ministries, uh, Answers in Genesis, Creation Ministries International, uh, Institute for Creation Research, they all have very uh, publicly pro proclaimed that uh, Behemoth is, in fact, some kind of dinosaur. Um, most of the time, they will point out to a sauropod. So for your readers, if they're unfamiliar with that term, that's the big long-necked dinosaurs, uh, your classic brontosaurus. You mentioned brachiosaurus. Outstanding. Way to go. Nice one, Zach. That's that's one of the biggest dinosaurs that has ever lived. There's a few others that are up in that range. Um, Brachiosaurus, just to get your handle on its size, you know, that's an animal that's approximately 70 to 80 feet long. And uh, its arms are a little bit longer than its back legs. So it's got kind of this giraffe sort of look to it with this really long neck that goes at a kind of about a 40, 30 to 40 degree angle. And I uh, would have been able to look inside the store, you know, like a third or fourth story window just standing there. So like, this is a massive, massive creature that would have weighed something on the order of like 80 tons. Um, maybe a little less. We're starting to get an idea that sauropods weren't quite as beefy as, as uh, you know, we might have what? thought in the past. But still, you know, uh, unrivaled um in terms of their size as land animals there is nothing that uh, on earth that has gotten bigger than them uh besides uh blue whales pretty much that, that's about <laughs> it and they're they're in the ocean they get to you know they get water to help hold up all of their girth um but the sauropods are walking around on dry land uh they're not swimming they're not waist deep in muck just because you know it helps them or something they've they've got very terrestrial uh -huh. elephant-like feet for walking around on dry ground so yeah, animal that big is something that a lot of young earth creationists say that, well, when when God says to Job, look at the behemoth that I made along with you and calls it, you know, the the, the chief animal, basically, mm. you know, the, the first of, of the ways that God has made or the first of the things yeah. God has made. Uh, as far as a rank, uh, you couldn't get any bigger than sauropod dinosaurs. You couldn't get anything in the history of the world that is... Um, mm -hmm. That, that's bigger than these things and would have been tremendously impressive if that was what Job was looking at. Hmm. Yeah. Yeah. It's really interesting. Yeah. So yeah, there's a nice little debate on like what, what that means. Cause obviously we don't see like behemoth or that specifically mentioned in Genesis one or Genesis two as being the first thing that was created or the first animal specifically. So it's like, well, what, how are we supposed to interpret that? Um, I don't yeah. know, maybe we'll talk about that later. Uh, yeah, so I think but, some of the translations mm -hmm. that talk about it is, you know, first in the rank is probably mm -hmm. really getting this. Not that it was the first thing that God made because that would be light, right? You know, or the heavens and the earth. Um, those would be the first things of God's creation rather than, than mm -hmm. anything that was made on day six. 
Um, unless you also look at the words like in the beginning, uh, when I made them at the beginning, you know, you just kind of say, oh, well, that's an inclusio for the entire creation week, which is a perfectly fine way of looking at it too. Interesting. Okay. Yeah. So uh, let's, let's think about this. Yep. So, oh, let's talk about uh, more about, I don't know. Is, I mean, is there any logic behind picking a one specific dinosaur? Uh, I, you know, I'm no expert, so I'm assuming there's hundreds of different dinosaurs and uh, the the one dinosaur or the the mosasaur you said wasn't even a dinosaur right but in, in my um uneducated mind it's still a dinosaur even though you don't say it just because it's big right right i don't know if that's big how and, it works, bigger but... and, and reptilian gotta be a dinosaur <laughs> it came in the package with all the other ones right that, that type of thing right so yeah I mean, there, um, so there are yeah, a couple yeah keep of, going whatever you're gonna say yeah there's you know there's a couple of physical indicators uh, that creationists point to, especially the tail that sways like a cedar tree, as, as is written in verse 17 mm. of chapter 40. Um, as far as like, can you get more specific? Well, no, you really can't. I mean, the, the, the text doesn't give us a huge number of anatomical uh, pointers. Right? It, it talks about the strength of its loin. It's, it's, you know, limbs are like bronze and it's, you know, it's like mm. bars of iron. It can drink up the Jordan, maybe, depends on what the verse is actually saying there. Um, so we get this idea of behemoth. And again, this is a word that means beasts, but in the, in the sense here, it's almost like the beast, right? You're, you're looking at the beast here, Job, and getting any more specific, uh, if you're gonna go down the route of dinosaur and say that the tail sways like a cedar tree is, is an indicator of a dinosaur, it, getting any more specific than a herbivorous dinosaur, I don't think is possible with the text. Uh, there's just no clues. Um, if it was a sauropod, I'd expect God to talk about its long neck, right? Which is every bit as impressive as the long tail on a sauropod dinosaur. So just in the same way that uh, hippo rose to the expense of elephant because things like tusks and trunk and, and ears weren't talked about in the text, you kind of say, well, maybe it's this instead. I would have expected if this is a sauropod dinosaur that there would be something about like the giant long neck. There would be like talking like a, mm -hmm. about a giraffe without mentioning its neck. That's just weird. <laughs> Why would you do that? Um, yeah. So there are plenty of other plant-eating dinosaurs. If you're going to stay and say that it is a dinosaur, there are other really gigantic dinosaurs out there. Some of the duck-billed dinosaurs were larger than a T-Rex. Um, that's mm. that's huge. It's a 50-foot-long Lambiosaurus. I mean, that's <laughs> that's gargantuan. Things probably weighing something like 15 tons or more, 20 tons. And, um, you know, could that be something that God would say, yeah, this is, you know, behold this that I made along with you. It's, it's the chief of things. You would, sure, why not? Um, God can be hyper. He doesn't have to pick like the single chief thing um, in terms of size that he's made. He's giving Job an example uh, of his power, his majesty, his creative capacity, and that this created thing um doesn't frighten him at all right god is not intimidated by yep. the beast hmm. yeah so this is an interesting question for you do we i mean have we found any dinosaurs nonetheless not even in israel in general but just in the middle east yeah yeah there have been uh dinosaurs and other marine reptiles or other um associated types of critters so there's mosasaurs uh, from Jordan okay. and from Israel. Uh, I remember going to a meeting back in 2004 um, and uh, they were given a description of a new 
new Moses who are from, you know, just across the river over in Jordan somewhere. So if you've got Cretaceous rocks in an area, which they do in the in, in that part of the world, you've got the potential to find dinosaurs and other sorts of things out there. So you do have big bones of stuff uh, and you've got lots of desert area, which is great for fossil hunting mm. because there's no, you know, biology covering it all up. There's no trees, you know, all that sort of stuff. Um, and there's there's a lot of different layers uh, of the geological record out in that part of the world. Uh, so the potential mm. for for dinosaur discoveries, I mean, I, right off the top of my head, I don't know which dinosaurs are known from, say, Jordan and Israel, Syria, etc. They're also politically not the, the most stable places. Um, <laughs> and also they tend to be fairly poor countries, you know, unless you're talking about like Saudi Arabia or what have you, if you've got a lot of oil. Um, but even then, you know, not a lot of money is going towards paleontology. Um, out in those areas it's just it's not of interest man but you could be digging up behemoth that'd be pretty cool <laughs> you know i, I think uh, anytime somebody uh digs up a dinosaur they they're digging up a behemoth they're, they're they're digging up a beast and uh i think that's cool uh, fair enough yeah yeah so no that you, you know you brought a good point up there with that the the neck and that, that i mean that makes a lot of sense um but yeah, so I, I did want to, you know, we kind of dug into it a little bit, but I do want to provide just a little bit more background context into the passage of Job and it's what's going on, because I don't know, it might give us some context, or at least some scholars have argued that it gives us context into what Job is, or the writer of Job is trying to do, or what God is saying. Um, so, like, you know, a very important thing is, um, like, why is Leviathan and Behemoth even being mentioned at all? So. Uh, and then, of course, you know, you have other previous animals. And why are they being mentioned? Um, so you feel free to give me your thoughts on it. I'm going to give some information and uh, you correct me or agree or, or whatever. Tell me what you think. So I'm, I'm, I'm drawing a lot from uh, Dr. Ortland's book that Piercing Leviathan that, that you mentioned earlier. So um, so first of all, you know, Job, everybody knows who Job is. He's the guy that, you know, God allowed the Satan or Satan, whatever, to, to, you know, send all the, you know, diseases and stuff like that. So Job's lost everything. He's, he's sad. Um, you know, there's specific texts where he, Job even, um, it seems to say that God is unjust for what's happening. And Job is essentially trying to figure out why God allowed this to do this, even though Job is like the good guy, right? That that's like the whole story. And then when you have chapters 38 and 39, where, you know, God's talking to Job and, and God shows Job that he was wrong. Like, hey, God is just, and he's 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 pointing to all these animals, some of which are like chaotic creatures, like like lions and ravens, who would have been seen in many cultures in the ancient Near East as as bad, like you know, uh, creatures that are not good. They they cause disorder and chaos. So, but but God is saying like, hey, he's he's even in control of those. Um, he's, he's, he's got, he even provides for them. Like it, this is, this is a good thing. It's not a bad creation. And then, and then in chapter 40, uh, not the very start, but the right after he asked Job, like, Hey, what about, what about all these animals? And the Job's like, I, I don't, I don't have anything to say. So or God, he says, um, that what, what many scholars say, it's like the divine warrior preparation where, mm. I guess to our, our, you know, 21st century readers, like we don't maybe understand the, the words there, but um, it, it talks about how like 
God is uh, putting on like glory and he has, he has his hand, like which is in many texts in the Bible is talking about like how he's about to go fight. And, and maybe you disagree, I don't know. But then, then you know, he, he'd like God set, there's a mention of God destroying his enemies or something like that, or, or evil. And then you have the mentions of Leviathan and Behemoth. And then after that, Job seems to uh, just, he doesn't exactly say why Job does this, but he all of a sudden starts worshiping God. And, and, um, but, but like, so it doesn't answer the question, but, you know, many, there's all these different interpretations, it's like what Behemoth there and Leviathan are supposed to be doing here, mm. where like, all, like, I had, Orland in his book, he lists like 10 or 15 different, like the ways that scholarly um, people have come up with this. So like, like, this is a, a story about how God is denying justice, or God is just ignoring Job, or uh, all these other different ideas. And then uh, Dr. Orland concludes with saying that uh, behemoth and leviathan are, are you know chaos creatures and god is essentially saying hey this is uh this uh, the and these normal animals like you you don't think i'm in control but now you know that when i'm about to defeat these chaotic creatures that you like oh you now you're in control so that's why job changes his mind after recording i wanted to include my interview with dr ryan armstrong on leviathan specifically but also the context surrounding the passage because if we understand who leviathan is it helps us a lot about understanding who behemoth is you know, chapter 40 uh there's this kind of little, little small back and forth with job and god um there's it's a little conversation there and then god comes it comes in you know uh get your uh get ready for the fight again we're we're coming back god answers from the from the whirlwind once again um you know i'm going to question you and you make it known to me and then uh you'll notice in chapter 40 verse uh verses 11 and 12 that there's this repetition about pride uh the that job uh, he challenges, God challenges Job to look on everyone who is proud and bring them low. Look on everyone who is proud and bring them low. Uh, so we have this there and it's kind of uh, tucked away in um, kind of like a, almost in the center of this opening, this opening to the poem. That there's this, all this stuff about uh, this first section between uh, chapters, sorry, between verses one 40, let's say nine, sorry, verses seven through 14. Uh, this is kind of a you versus me or, or Job versus God. And the pronouns switch a little bit between if God is a him or if God is a you or a me, sorry. Uh, so, um, so the pronouns switch a little bit, but this is like the first section. It opens up directly challenging Job. God says, why don't you just like look at everyone who is proud? And this term look actually occurs in a few key places in the poems leading up to this. Uh, the last poem ended with the eagle being able to look at far distances. So we have this concept of look as a way of showing power or showing wisdom. Uh, being able to see is uh, a point of privilege. And so um, God challenges Job, look at anyone who is proud. And then if you flip to the end of the, uh, the, end of the poem, the very last thing is how Leviathan is able to look at everyone who is lofty, at everyone who is proud. In fact, he is king. 
over all of the pride one, all over all the proud ones. Uh, so it kind of opens up challenging Job to look at the proud and it ends with Leviathan looking at the proud. So Leviathan is able to do what Job cannot do, almost kind of mocking Job's ability to do this. Um, and then I also real quick, I'll point out the way that Job ends his poem is that Job says, well, I did look at you in 42 verse five. So just a few verses later, Job ends his final poem by saying, I did look at God. So I did get to see one person who is lofty, God. The, this poem is already kind of setting up all this stuff about pride and looking at, at proud ones. And then, uh, and that's like kind of the beginning is like you versus me, God versus Job. And then the next section is about behemoth and how powerful behemoth is. Chapter 41, one through eight is about God versus Leviathan. Uh, and then uh, the, the last section of the poem is going to be about how powerful Leviathan is. So we kind of have this real fun structure to the poem, these different sections that section everything off, beginning with the issue of pride, looking at pride at those who are proud, and then ending with pride and looking at those who are proud. And this kind of this juxtaposition of Job versus Leviathan. Uh, so Job cannot look at the proud and Leviathan is proud. So the language, even though the language is about Leviathan, this mythical creature and the sea monster in the sea, it's specifically God answering Job about specific challenges. And Job challenged God. And Job said, I want to present all my arguments to God directly. And God says, I don't even let Leviathan do that, man. You know, Leviathan's way more tougher than you are. So we see again this, this uh, juxtaposition of Leviathan versus Job kind of through this whole poem. So why use an ancient myth? Why use this, this legend of God fighting this, the chaos monster in God's response to Job? Well, thank you for asking. I'm glad you asked. Because uh, this monster is actually a perfect response to Job. Job mentioned Leviathan numerous times. He's talked about these myths numerous times. And for Job, this myth, this monster is powerful and scary. And every time Job complains, Job complains about God's power and God's wisdom and how Job cannot compete with God. And by using this monster, God is bringing up this amazing moment of creation, uh, this, this bringing in these themes, these motifs of creation, as well as God's power and God's wisdom all of that associated with creation and saying, look, I created the universe. I am so powerful. Who are you to challenge me? And in a sense, there's kind of this irony here that God is like, look, you know, I'm up here running the universe. I don't even pay attention to Leviathan. That's how powerful I am. Uh, you know, you think I care. You think I could deal with, you think I'm, I have time to deal with you and all of your arguments. I know that was a lot. What are your thoughts? Anything that you should add? Um, uh, well, it sure uh, is you a lot even... because, you know, the book of yeah. Job is a lot. I mean, it, it Job yeah. and, you know, when, when we get into a little bit of the, you know, how do you translate this verse or that verse? It's very, very difficult in Job. Yeah. Um, the, the Hebrew is all poetic. Um, and so it reads very different and runs on different kinds of rules than say narrative, right? If you're reading about mm. when, you know, uh, David is fleeing from Saul and going to this place and he meets somebody there's there's a certain way that we all know and in hebrew scholars as they they understand this better than we do 
you know, anticipate the way that the text kind of behaves. This gets thrown out the window in the kind of poetry that we see in the book of Job, mm -hmm. because you can do partial sentences, incomplete thoughts, you know, you're trying to contrast ideas and sounds and inflections. Job has more single term words um, in it, uh, what are called hapaxal gomena, um, than any other book in the Bible, save uh, Isaiah or Ezekiel, one of those two, which is like twice its size. So like Job is really tricky, not only in its um, linguistic construction, but also in its vocabulary. And what you'll find is that if you go to a, a seminary or talk with some biblical scholars, they'll, they'll let you know, like anybody who handles the wisdom literature and the poetics, these are the people who have the best vocabulary among all the Hebrew scholars, because they, they have to toil in all of the normal words and then all of these things that occur like three, four, two, six times in the Bible. They have to have all these words like committed to memory. It's crazy. Mm. Um, and when we only have singletons like we do frequently in Job, um, we have to look for either external Hebrew writing to help us figure out if is, is this word used elsewhere. Or we then look to, um, you know, other languages nearby, like uh, Ugaritic, the, the Canaanite uh, language, or we might look to others if you're desperate, not desperate, but like if, if you might even have to go to something like Arabic, which is, you know, displaced pretty far in time uh, compared to Hebrew. But nonetheless, you know, there's still some flow over time for those. So those are the sorts of things that that good Hebraists are using and applying mm -hmm. when they're trying to figure out what's going on. And this book is very tricky, very, very tricky. Mm -hmm. One of the things I liked a lot about Ortland's book, uh, Piercing Leviathan, is that the animating question for his book is, what is God saying to Job that changes this man's heart from... Um, recognizing God's authority, but questioning his ethics to a point where he eventually turns in worship and sacrifices not only for him, but also for his friends. Uh, hmm. You know, what is it that that, you know, that God said that can get that kind of <laughs> that kind of rotation in his heart? The first response, as you said, from Job is like he covers his hands like his mouth, like, sorry, you know, I shouldn't say anything. I raised up my voice, made a mistake. I put my hand over my mouth, he says. But then after Behemoth and Leviathan, his response is worship. Not just, I, I messed up, I have no place here. But I have no place here, I messed up, but you, Lord, are worthy of worship. So uh, I, I really liked that because it, it brings about in Ortland's writing, uh, he asks questions like, you know, we usually think of God's responses to Job as being angry and sarcastic. You know, where, where were you? when the foundations of, of the heavens and earth were laid. You know, do you know their span? Do you know where I keep the storehouses of hail you know, for times of war and strife? And uh, that's that's how I've always ever read this. It's, it's always God just kind of angrily bearing down on Job and Job's having to sit there and just take it, right? Girt your loins, the old King James says, like stand up, be a man and take your medicine. Um, and Ortland's uh, approach is to ask the question, no, what if God's question to Job is more, were you there when I laid the foundations of the earth? Do you have the knowledge of that? To, to kind of come with a, a, it's firm, but at the same time gentle to, to help Job understand that the questions he's asking are really the wrong ones and to bring him back to an understanding of who God is, who he already worships and loves, and that God is even bigger and better than that God that he worships and loves. So 
Uh, those I thought were some really great insights from that. And, and in his argument, Ortland says, Behemoth and Leviathan are these creatures of chaos that rule over us, rule over this world that we have no control over whatsoever. Um, and they're described in these you know, highly stylized sorts of ways, which everybody who's looking at Job recognizes that there's stylized and highly evocative poetic description here. So even, even a young earth creationist who's saying, I think it's a dinosaur, um, will still look at it and say, yeah, bones that are like brass are like brass. They're not really brass. You know, the Leviathan's heart is as hard as a stone. Yes, as hard as the lower millstone. Well, no, right? It can't be as hard as a lower millstone or else a heart can't beat, uh, right? So we all recognize that there's that there's poetic language and uh, license that's being used here to, to build these creatures up. And we see that in the other creatures too, you know, talking about uh, different aspects of their capabilities that seem to be almost otherworldly. You mentioned there being kind of like, you know, the sorts of animals that are outside the realm of human control. And, and God is telling mm -hmm. Job, I'm in control of all that. You, you don't know what's going on. You don't even know when, you know, the, the mountain goats are giving birth. I do. <laughs> I, I, I got a firm hand on what's going on. I helped keep the ostrich alive, despite the fact that it, you know, lays its eggs on the ground where they can be trampled. Even this dumb animal, I got it. And, and you don't. Um, so in, in, in that, he then looks at Behemoth and Leviathan as uh, potentially connected to, or, or very closely connected to some of the other types of um, beasts and chaos monsters that are known from the ancient Near East. Uh, Leviathan is a very easy one to make a connection from because you've got basically the same word uh, that's used in other cultures for the, the chaos beast Lotan, um, also elsewhere called Yam. Um, and even in the Bible, Leviathan is talked about as a chaos monster in a, in a few different passages uh, that God is able to smite and destroy. It's mentioned as having like seven heads uh, in one passage. So there's good, I think there's good internal reasons for looking at Leviathan as, uh, as a chaos creature. It's a little harder to do with Behemoth. Um, not that it can't be done, but it's harder because we don't have another instance in the Bible where Behemoth is used mm -hmm. in this capacity of some sort of like chaos creature that God is able to control. For that, you have to look outside. You have to look at some Ugaritic writings where they have a bull of the gods. Um, likewise with the Gilgamesh epic, where you have the bull of heaven that comes down and uh, Enki and Gilgamesh have to defeat it. Or in the, in the Ugaritic, you've got Baal, Baal that has to, you know, uh, kill the, uh, the, uh, the ox moat. or the, uh, yeah, oh, well, moat, uh, the god of death is the one who sends Lotan, uh, the, um, the Hydra. Um, and, and Baal has got to do that, but he dies in the process, but then he's reborn, which gets into the Canaanite cyclicity of of the seasons and why Baal is the the mm -hmm. god of the land's productivity and and storms and things like that so their mythology is built around trying to explain you know the phenomena of the world and this giant divine cosmic battle that happens mm -hmm. and uh, and is essentially kind of replayed over and over again in a sense and uh, which is very different from the bible right i mean in this case what we have with be both behemoth and leviathan even if they are chaos creatures of some kind, um, behemoth is described as something that God made along with you for Job, right? That's one of the arguments kind of against it being um, a mm -hmm. chaos creature um, or something like that is that it, 
there does seem to be a good number of points where behemoth seems to be a, a, a physical creature. Um, so I'd, I'd put a couple of notes on that, like the, the mention of the word behold, which is said twice at the beginning of this, when, when God says uh, to Job, look at the behemoth in verse 15, and then, uh, so, oh, sorry. Um, yeah, look at the behemoth in verse 15, and then he says it again in 16. The, the, the Hebrew is the same, although English translations don't often do that because they don't want to look too repetitive. So if Job's supposed to look at it, it kind of seems like he should be able to look at something, right? It's kind of hard to see a mythological or, or chaos creature. So that's one argument mm. um, made along with you. Seems to be that this is a creature rather than some something deeper in time or cosmic space. Um, it's described in habitats, right? That it's along the rivers, it's under the lotus tree, it's taking shade. Uh, there's other animals playing around it. And its physical description befits a real creature, even if there's a lot of poetic license and, and kind of hyperbole. The behemoth is moving, it's resting, it's eating, right? Other things are playing around it. And so those are the sorts of indicators that those at least who think that the behemoth is a real animal point to and say, yeah, Job should be able to look at and see a creature that God is describing here. Seems very specific. Um, hmm. And and I get that. I, I, think that's, I think that's a reasonable argument to make for behemoth being real, whether you think it's a hippo or an elephant or a dinosaur or something entirely different. Uh, there's been a number of others. Some people think that it's a, a giant ox, um, especially if they want to make comparisons uh, with the chaos monsters of, of say, the god of, of the heavens or I'm sorry, the bull of the heavens with the bull of the gods. They're like, okay, well, maybe it's an ox. Like, but it says it eats grass like an ox. If it was an ox or a bull, you'd probably say, like, behold, it eats grass because it's an ox. Um, and and the, it doesn't say that. So those are, you know, those are some, I think, pretty good reasons to think of Behemoth as a real animal. Thinking of it as a dinosaur mostly comes down to the fact that it's gigantic and it has this tail that sways like a cedar tree. And uh, if you're looking at hippos or you're looking at elephants, you know, the tail's not, it, it, the tail's not where the action is uh, in those animals. Um, it's kind of like a rope with a troll doll, you know, hanging at the end of it and just swinging around. The hippo has about a two foot long tail um, and it's kind of, it's almost a little spirally, kind of like pigs can be. Um, and of all the things that kind of you might think about with a hippo, you might describe its giant mouth and huge tusks, but the tail, you know, mm. that, that's really unappealing. Uh, same thing with the elephant. So a lot of creationists look at that and say, dinosaurs have long tails. Their tails are held off of the ground. They don't droop. They actually stand out uh, horizontal to the ground. And that's due to the musculature that controls them and the tendons that are connected in with the bones of of the uh, dinosaur. So one of the things that makes a dinosaur a dinosaur, one of its characteristics is that on the backbones, as you get along the tail, the spine that comes up from that backbone is flared out front to back. And that creates additional anchoring points for tendons and muscles to hold it. And that's why dinosaur tails can be held out horizontally. Um, even alligator and crocodile tails, they, they have that feature too. It's part of what's called the archosaurs. Mm -hmm. And if you look at a crocodile when it's walking, its tail will come out this way before it starts drooping. So they're able to hold their tails up higher than lizards. With, those are just on the ground. They don't have the same architecture to them. So the muscles that are connected to the tail are also connected to the hind limbs in a dinosaur. 
the, the upper leg bone, the femur, has this little knob that sticks out about two thirds towards the top. And that knob attaches muscles from the femur bone into the tail. So every time a dinosaur takes a step forward, the femur actually, uh, sorry, the tail sways out to the side of the leg that just stepped. And then it would go the other way. So the movies of Jurassic World and Jurassic Park do this really well. They, they show that, that dinosaurian movement very accurately. Um, and so swaying back and forth with this big, huge, long tail like dinosaurs could have, you say, okay, well, that makes sense. And there's nothing in mammalia that makes sense out of that uh, description. And in, in the terms of like, as a paleontologist, looking across all the animals that have ever lived that I know about, uh, and that we in the scientific community have a handle on, only dinosaurs have a tail that could reasonably be called something that sways like a cedar tree. And so this is one of the reasons why many young earth creationists are so um, convinced that uh, behemoth has got to be a dinosaur. But I expect that you probably have mm. a catch um, about whether we're talking about a tail or not. <laughs> yeah, yeah, we, we'll have to go into that. So, so what about alligator? I mean, maybe that doesn't fit the other descriptions, but doesn't alligator kind of swing back and forth? A little bit. Um, it does eventually drag down on the ground though, right? And an alligator does. doesn't eat grass like an ox. So, you know, in, in looking at <laughs> yeah. the behemoth, um, alligators and crocodiles don't fit because they're carnivorous rather than herbivorous. So we've got in this in this epic description from God, this, this vision to Job of these animals, we've got a, a giant massive herbivore and we have a giant massive carnivore. And so some have tried to say maybe they're actually the same animal as being described. I, I just don't see, I don't see how that can be the case. So, um, mm -hmm. Yeah, so we're going to have to look for some type of herbivore. And amongst the, the mammal herbivores, tail that sways like a cedar tree just isn't isn't anywhere. Nothing has it uh, mm. in it. Interesting. Now, yeah, it's really interesting. The One of the really interesting I, things I find about this conversation is because you do have some bits of liber liberal scholarship here and there, not even specifically like the chaotic part, because a lot of the liberal scholars out there actually – think that it's like referring to a crocodile or a hippo or whatever mm. and it's like you know well, I, I learned when I was two that like the hippo doesn't have a long tail but um, then you have like oh well this is describing a creature they didn't actually see so it's just like things that were passed down and and all this other stuff so it's inter just it's really interesting to me that the some of the liberal scholars are actually saying these are real animals mm -hmm. but they're just uh, either either misinterpreted or or whatever. Yeah, um, yeah, you definitely have uh, amongst, say, the non-believing scholarship of the Bible. People just look at the Bible as literature and, and don't think that it's inspired by God for anything in particular. You've got a spread of opinions there, too. So on the one end, you have someone like John Day, a very well-known uh, Hebrew and Old, uh, Old Testament scholar in England, uh, now retired, I think. And uh, he had a book in 1985 on Behemoth and Leviathan, and he made the argument mm -hmm. for chaos creatures. So, I mean, here's somebody who thinks that the Bible is just written by ancient Semitic peoples has no connection to God. He's, he's not a believer. And he thinks they're chaos creatures. And then you have other liberal scholars who are like, very clearly, this is talking about a hippo and a crocodile. So it's not <laughs> even that you have like a liberal conservative split here. Um, but you, you definitely tend to see a little bit more of the chaos creatures in some of the more, I, I even hate to use the, the word literal, uh, liberal here, but let's say critical, um, text critical scholarship. Um, but you still have people there thinking that it's real. And, and that's because the descriptions here are 
tricky. They're really, really mm. tricky uh, to figure mm. out what's going on. And, and again, the, the language and the terminology that's being used is really, really difficult. I mean, this is this yeah. is PhD level Hebrew stuff here, and and I ain't got that. Yeah, I, I got. <laughs> that's my sister. Yeah, and and uh, she's she's an Old Testament uh, professor and an Old Testament scholar, so I get to run ideas by her. Uh, but she looks at Job, and she was the one who said, like, yeah, those people, they're the ones with the best vocabulary. <laughs> that's cool. That's cool. Uh, so we're going to get to that tell thing. Uh, but uh, one more thing here, and I just forgot what I was going to say. Um, that's okay. All right, we'll just go. Oh, no, yes, yes. So you, you're a young earth creationist, a very conservative Christian, okay? Mm-hmm. You you think the Bible is true. You think it's historical. and it seems like you're contemplating the idea that it's a chaos creature. So can you help my audience understand how you would even consider that idea? Because it you, it seems that like, hey, if this is symbolic, then that's, that's like untrue. Can, yeah. you, can you talk about that? Well, you know, one of the things I think that as a conservative Christian, as an evangelical who believes in inerrancy uh, and inspiration, uh, in, in accordance with, say, the Chicago Statement on inerrancy, not trying to redefine inerrancy in some new way. Um, we have to understand that we take the text on its own terms. If a text is telling us about historical details, then I think that those details matter historically. So one of the reasons why I'm a young earth creationist is because I think that the genealogies in Genesis 5 and 11 are intending to tell us that human history is is finite and fairly short uh, compared to what most people think today. Um, And I think that the days of creation are in fact actual days, right? That's a discussion for a different one. But just for context, the genealogies bring me back to a time of Adam only a few thousands of years ago. And if creation actually occurs in six days, then then I'm a young earth creationist, right? Um, So I think that the stories about Abraham and Isaac and Jacob are intended to tell us history. I take them as historical people. I don't take the parables of Jesus as historical people because Jesus is trying to tell us a story, right? A, a moral lesson using uh, characters or events or things that were not intended uh, to take as real, right? The Lazarus that he talks about that goes down into Abraham's bosom may or may not be the Lazarus he knows, right? <laughs> it might be, but you know it doesn't matter to the story. Uh, the the ten virgins um, and you know those sorts of things they don't have names. We don't. It doesn't matter. So the question that we have as we approach Job, and especially God's speech to Job at the end, is what type of literature is this? Um, and what is the intention of that? And so to take the Bible in, in a word, literally, um, that means that if it's literally poetry, I must take it as literally poetry and not literally something else, right? Um, that's when people start using the word literalistic. I don't like that word because it usually means just somebody to the right of where I am. Um, it's, it's just used as a pejorative. So in order to answer the question of what behemoth and Leviathan are, we have to know what it is that God is trying to accomplish with his speech and what sort of speech this is. Is this a natural history lesson mm-hmm. like Job just received in, this, in the first half of God's speech? If it's a continuation of that, then I will affirm behemoth and Leviathan as real creatures described hyperbolically and described in in highly stylized poetry to evoke emotions from Job, but nonetheless real creatures. 
So you could look at something like the description of Leviathan breathing fire and setting coals ablaze as something that is hyperbolic and yet still talking about a real animal. Right? You could do that just like his heart or his chest is as hard as, as a stone. It isn't, but we get the idea. It's an image. Um, yeah. If on the other hand, uh, God is changing from a natural history lesson in the first part to something where he is going to describe to Job a way in which he defeats the cosmic powers of darkness that invade the world around us, uh, that control most of the world around us, and God has a plan for its destruction. If that's the case, then I can take Behemoth and Leviathan as, uh, as the literary chaos creatures that Job would have been familiar with and recognize that God is using those to describe world powers that he has no fear over, right? No fear of. Like God doesn't, it doesn't bother him and he is going to set it right. And, you know, that's part of, that's part of Ortland's argument um, and, and some others as well. Uh, I was particularly impressed. Uh, like I've normally throughout my life considered Behemoth and Leviathan as real creatures. Um, and with Behemoth probably being a dinosaur, Leviathan, honestly, I don't know. Leviathan could be a crocodile. It could be an ancient crocodile, a modern one. There's not enough anatomical detail. I know it lives in the water. I know it's scary and I know it's scaly and fearsome, right? I, that's not a lot to go on. As a paleontologist, as a guy who cares and, and thinks about organismal biology a lot, that's, that's not much to run with. So uh, when other creationists say, oh, well, Leviathan is this particular dinosaur, I'm like, guys, we, we don't have enough to even say it is a dinosaur. First off, it's living in the waters and in kind of what seems like the seas. Dinosaurs don't do that. So first off, dinosaur kind of goes away. Could it be something else? Sure, but I don't know what it is. Um, hmm. If on the other hand, God's talking about this as, a, as some sort of chaos creature, as some sort of power of the world, that's different. So last year, I was at uh, the Evangelical Theological Society annual meeting in Denver, and I sat in on a presentation by uh, Dr. Dwayne Garrett, uh, who teaches at Southern Baptist Theological Seminary. He teaches the, the book of Job there. He's working on a commentary on that right now. And he made the argument that, well, Behemoth and Leviathan are kind of proto-apocalyptic. Uh, this, this chapter is proto-apocalyptic in which we have a beast and a dragon, much like we eventually have a beast and a dragon in Revelation. And the beast... Uh, in his view, uh, the behemoth here uh, and Leviathan were both composite creatures, much like other uh, other you know, kind of heavenly beings that we see both in heaven as well as expelled from heaven. Uh, you have these composite mm -hmm. creatures that defy normal classification. It's called behemoth. It's called beast. There's no there's no specific name for it like there is for the lions, like there is for the, the war horse, like mm -hmm. there is for all the other animals in the previous chapter. You get beast as the name. So that might be one indicator that you're not talking about a regular animal here. You're, you're talking about something else. I found his argument to be very, very compelling. And anybody who's interested in, in um, learning more of, of his view, um, they can go over to the biblical training um, website, biblicaltraining.org. Uh, which is run by Bill Mounts, and he has got uh, his entire seminary class on Job uh, available, and I mean, oh. it's it's really really good. It's like 40, 40 lectures, about you know half hour each or something like that. Wow. So it's a lot of stuff. 
And um, so he's got four lectures dealing with Leviathan and Behemoth and didn't get into the details that he went to in his ETS paper on some of the issues there. Mm-hmm. Um, but I came away from that going, this is, this is impressive. And this might cause me to rethink my perspective, not because, um, not because I feel pressure from old age geology or evolution, or because my, my view of the Bible is liberal or becoming liberal or anything like that. <laughs> it's because I want to know what is the genre and the meaning behind this text. And Dwayne Garrett, um, I think, makes a very, very compelling case for why this is something more like apocalyptic literature, in which case I shouldn't be looking at Behemoth and Leviathan as real animals. But he thinks, uh, in particular, that they represent uh, Behemoth is the powers of the world, the, the civilizations that are aligned, that have aligned themselves against God and resist God. Hmm. God doesn't He's not bothered by them, right? Uh, eventually, it says in Job that uh, God will, his maker will approach him with the sword, right? As God's coming up with his sword, it's like, I can take care of business. And uh, Garrett argues that Leviathan is Satan. And that this would actually be an interesting bookend because, of course, right, Satan shows up at the beginning of the book of Job <laughs> and then disappears and we never see him again. And, and it's it's kind of, frustrating because like here he he sets up this huge set of dominoes that destroys job's life job's friends come over to console him and we all know how that goes it's pretty awful and in the end there doesn't seem to be any resolution unless if uh, leviathan is actually satan then god is telling job at the end of the book i've got this covered i am going to defeat this thing and its powers are nothing compared to mine it rages in the seas, it you know coils, it, it breathes fire, it does all this terrible stuff. Nobody can do anything about him, which would be true, right? No human being can do anything about Satan, mm-hmm. but God can. Yeah. And so, you know, if that's the genre, then I have got to make sure that I align my my thinking biblically with that genre and not expect uh, it to be talking about real animals if we're talking about something that's a lot like one of the visions of of Daniel or Ezekiel or um, or in Revelation. Now it doesn't say vision here. That's that would be one of the counter arguments against a position like this and and Ortland's position as well that these are, are chaos creatures. There's there's no sense in which God says I'm giving you a vision or Job says I was caught up in the heavens to see this or something like that that you do see in the other chapters. I don't know that that's necessary. Um, but it would be the type of argument that if I was going to hold to the literal animal, the, the material animal perspective, I would I would argue and say there's no indicators that we've switched genre in some sense, Un- unless hmm. you've got God putting on his armor, right, and getting ready for divine warfare. But those you know, the translations of those verses are are tough and very contentious. Ben Stanhope made some other interesting arguments for Behemoth being some type of mythical, symbolic creature, which, by the way, does not mean that it is somehow untrue or false. Myth is truer than true. It is truer than our historical reality. But I wasn't sure where to put it in this video, so here he goes. Considering all this, what then is Behemoth? Given that he appears in the Texan dyad with a dragon used in ancient literature as a personification of oceanic chaos... Behemoth is probably the personification of the terrestrial aspect of created order, especially of the animal kingdom. Not only is this how early Jewish extra-biblical texts understood him, 
but it would also correspond quite nicely with a reference made in the Ugaritic texts. Recall that ancient Ugarit is linguistically the best extra-biblical material we've got for contextualizing ancient Israel's northwest Semitic culture. Quote, Surely I lifted up the dragon, I destroyed the twisting serpent, the tyrant with the seven heads. I destroyed Arshu, beloved of El, and put an end to El's calf, Attic. So the Ugaritic version of the Leviathan, who's also called the twisting serpent, just so happens to be paired with a mythical bullock, literally called the calf of God. When we look at the main biblical passage that talks about Leviathan, what do we find? He's paired with the super bullock also, an intensified form of the common Hebrew word for cattle. It seems unlikely that this similar pairing is merely a coincidence, and many scholars routinely find it to be our most reasonable identification with the limited data that we have. We don't know much about the divine bull Attic, but we do have precedents for other divine bulls and other ancient Near Eastern texts. In the Epic of Gilgamesh, for example, the goddess Iana sends the tremendous bull of heaven to defeat the heroes Gilgamesh and Enkidu, one so great that it, quote, drank the water of a river in great slurps. With each slurp it used up one mile of the river, but its thirst was not satisfied. This is somewhat reminiscent to what we read of Behemoth. Behold, he drinks up a river, restraining its rush. He trusts that he can draw up the Jordan into his mouth. Third, Job says that Behemoth dwells, quote, in the shelter of the reeds in the marsh. Psalm 68.30 similarly describes bulls as dwellers, quote, among reeds. And the Ugaritic texts likewise use a cognate term to describe bulls that inhabited marshy regions. Finally, Job praises the reproductive virility of this creature. In the agrarian culture of the ancient Near East, bulls were the go-to symbol of reproductive virility. So Behemoth is a bovine personification of the animal kingdom, and perhaps of the whole of the terrestrial realm itself, a supernatural counterpart to Leviathan. The Job passage is trying to teach us a lesson about God's domination over the cosmic order and man's weakness by comparison. Yeah, yeah, that's difficult because the 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 Hebrew is so flexible that even if the writer of Job was attempting to describe God as you know putting armor down, you could always change just one Hebrew character just a little bit, and it completely changes the meaning of the the verse, which some scholars yeah. do. And uh, yeah, uh, yeah, so that, that makes things really complicated. It, it really is. In in watching the videos uh, by uh, Dwayne Garrett on uh, BiblicalTraining.org. Uh, you know, he presents especially a translation of, uh, let me just check here, uh, verses 9 through 12 in chapter 41 on the Leviathan that read very, very differently than all English translations because English translations have kind of God describing Leviathan. Leviathan asks a series of kind of rhetorical questions about himself or like he's boasts. And then it has God make an insert or, or he kind of boasts about himself. And Garrett's like, no, 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 no. They've They've seriously messed up these translations here. This is God <laughs> responding to boasts of Leviathan about how powerful he is. And God eventually saying, like, I'm not impressed uh, by any of this. So it really, I mean, whether God is speaking or whether Leviathan is speaking is an open question in, like, two of the verses here. And, like, a lot could hinge on who is doing the speaking here. So just to get the, your, your listeners uh, and, and viewers here a sense of like how tricky this can be, you're exactly right. A little switch of a character or a, a lack of rec recognition of who's doing the talking can mean a world of difference uh, in this. And so yeah. it, it's, it's challenging stuff. Yeah. When I interviewed Dr. Ryan Armstrong, who did his dissertation on Job, and we did it on Leviathan. 
and right in the middle of our interview, you know, I didn't know what he was going to say. And he's like, yeah, so this is the passage and um, we got to change this a little, this little bit right here. We got to change this a little bit right here. And like, he goes like three chapters worth of just doing that for like 30 minutes. It's like, okay, all right. What do, I don't know anything anymore. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, but yeah, you know, it changes everything. So, um, yeah, food thoughts and, and we, we, the, the thing that we're kind of inching around and this is like one of the biggest arguments that i guess in and when i was growing up that i heard like these have to be historical creatures because the other creatures before that were you know normal historical creatures um so you know ortland makes that interesting argument where job seems to change his mind he something seems to affect him that makes him say or not even say he just immediately starts like worshiping God. Mm -hmm. um, so um, I don't know, do you know of any responses to that argument from creationist literature that think it's a dinosaur or it's a historical animal or what? Um, it's a good question. And I, I don't know if uh, young earth creationists have responded to that argument uh, from Ortland or others who have made that. Um, you know, they, I, I, I haven't seen anything like that. Um, and, and part of it is that young earth creationist writing tends to exist in its own little bubble a lot. And that's, that's unfortunate. I, I, I think one of the things that I've been trying to do um, in going to things like the Evangelical Theological Society and, and encouraging others uh, to engage with our biblical scholars, because um, if, if we are going to be making claims or statements about the way the world is, um, based on our understanding of the Bible, we want to make sure that we've got that understanding correct. Um, and these types of, of, um, of books, articles, these types of presentations um, need a thoughtful um, evaluation by creationists, uh, not a knee-jerk response and just, oh, you're not believing the Bible, because no. that's, that's a ridiculous statement. These are people who do believe the Bible. Um, and we've talked about a couple of different ways that one could read this text and and you you know amongst people who believe the Bible and, and it hinges on what sort of genre we're looking at or what the purpose of the text is, and I think all all of us who hold a high view of Scripture and hold to things like inerrancy that means like yeah we can all agree with that statement, and just because somebody disagrees with my interpretation of it uh, doesn't mean that they've gone liberal or they don't believe the text or they've bowed to the pressure of something or or what have you that you know. That may happen with people, but I don't know their hearts. I don't know their minds. So I just have to deal with the, the presentation, the argument that's being made. And uh, mm -hmm. to do that, hopefully in good faith, right? Not to assign moral failings or, you know, motives to people when you don't have them. That's, that's improper. And, and not that young earth creationists have a corner on that market, by the way. I mean, there's lots of people out there that will say, <laughs> oh, you only say this because and not because of the argument that I made, but because of some other thing that you know I believe or, you know, whatever. Um, we, we can't do that um, as Christians uh, to one another. That, that's really improper. Um, mm -hmm. and, and it also behooves us to then be as clear as we can uh, when we're writing things about the whys behind the positions that we've taken. So that if somebody says, well, the reason you're really doing that is because, no, please just read why I said I was doing it. And let's not venture, <laughs> yeah. you know, any other comment uh, in that, you know, in, in some other tangent. But it won't stop people. Yeah. But it, but hopefully it'll help the reader who sees that happen go, okay, yeah, let's let's not do that. 
Yeah. Yeah, that's that's what I appreciate about you and, and Dr. Dustin Burlett and 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 there's definitely other young earth creations out there yeah. that you you really really do care about, you know, representing people's positions. You care about finding truth and and I love that that perspective about you guys. Um and but yeah, so um we we hinted around it. Uh, tail is it a cedar? Um, there are a number of interesting thoughts on that, specifically because it is poetry. Okay, yeah. so um, the specifically the, the three verses that really are the context of this is chapter uh, Job forty sixteen eighteen, and it says in certain translations it says, "Behold, his strength is in his loins." Of course, talking about behemoth and his power and the muscles of his belly. So it's got this reference to loins, which is, you know, the, the reproductive organ. And then next line, or yeah, I guess line or set of two lines, you have, he extends his tail like a cedar and the sinews of his thighs are knit together. And then the next line is his bones are tubes of bronze, his limbs are like bars of iron. And the tricky thing there is because the he extends his tail like a cedar and the sinews of his thighs are knit together. Because of Hebrew poetry, a lot, oftentimes when you use one phrase, you'll, the, the next phrase after that is going to be very similar. It's just a different way of saying the same thing. So many of scholars have argued that, hey, this isn't referring to like a literal tail like a cedar. It's referring to a, a euphemism for the, the male reproductive part of, of, of behemoth. And so it's not actually referring to a tail, it's referred to something else. And there's a lot of different interesting arguments for this, especially like ancient writers and um, and their translations and how they interpret it. And they some of them interpret it the same way. Um, so that makes things even more difficult because um, it's we don't know, you know, some people think they do, but we don't know necessarily is this a long tail, is there something else? And is this part of the description of behemoth or I don't know, who, what is this, just hyperbole? Uh, any thoughts on any of that? Yeah, boy, you bring up a really, really good point on this. And it's a really tricky aspect. Um, first time that I came across uh, the argument that the tail wasn't really talking about a tail, but was talking about something else entirely, um, was uh, I was co-teaching an advanced class on creation issues uh, with Dr. Alan Furr, who teaches at Liberty University. He's a poetics guy. so. Uh, you know, he's he's in and amongst Job and whatnot. He's like, eh, you know, that 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 might not be a tale. I'm like, what? Uh, this is like five, five, six years ago uh, now. And that was the first time I had, had really heard that because I hadn't I hadn't dived down into some of the commentaries. You don't you, you, know, you don't see that in a regular Bible. You don't always even see it in your, you know, in your uh, yeah. little study Bible. They're not going to nobody wants to write the word penis inside a Bible. Um, that's just it's something. Yeah, it's just. Mm. But um, so, yeah, the tail might be a euphemism for the male reproductive organ. We see that in post-biblical Hebrew uh, where that's used. And of course, human beings, especially guys, have uh, a long, long list of, of euphemisms for that member. It's unending, right? It just it continues to happen. In our, own, in our own language of English, we've got lots of things. I won't mention them. Mm -hmm. uh, it's unseemly. but there's all sorts of words that are used for the male anatomy that have nothing to do with what they are. Um, you know, Spanish has got a whole bunch of them. I remember taking Spanish in high school and then you, you find out some of the dirty words and you're like, ha ah, ha that's funny. They call them egg. And you're like, what? Eggs? Okay, um, sure. But one of the things, uh, so you know, I, I can appreciate that tail might mean something else. And if tail 
doesn't mean tail on the animal, but rather refers to the reproductive parts, then the argument for a dinosaur uh, on that basis collapses, right? There, there's no tail like a cedar tree. Oh. If this is talking about a male reproductive organ and it's extending, then we're just talking about something with great virility and it's like a cedar tree, big, long and stiff. Okay, got the point, appreciate that. Thank you, Lord. Um, we got something else here. And so you lose the anatomical argument for a dinosaur. The only thing that you could rely on is that it's chief of the of, among the works of, of God. Hmm. Uh, you know, th that could be whatever God chooses, right? And if it's something available to Job at the time, that may or probably isn't a dinosaur. Um, so if that's tail, but not tail, then, then dinosaurs out. The one thing that bothers me about that um, and I'm just thinking off the cuff a, a bit. I've been, I've been mulling it over for the past uh, week or so, but, but even longer, just thinking about like, okay, tail as a reproductive organ. The problem with using tail as a euphemism is that we don't, we don't tend to use euphemisms of an existing part of a body to talk about another part of the body. So for ourselves, right, if I wanted to talk about, you know, my head, you know, I might talk about my noggin or you know, stuff like that, right? There's a bunch of euphemisms that we have for somebody's head or brain or skull or, or what have you, but there's never like, you know, you're, oh, you busted your kneecap, did you? Like, no, you know, I hurt my head. Um, if we have a euphemism about our male member, which we have plenty in English, they're not other parts of our own body because that just becomes confusing. It, it ceases to become a euphemism. It just becomes confusion. Um, presidential debate a few years ago amongst the Republicans, there was a lot of talk about hands, and about the size of people's hands. It was stupid. It was, it was nauseating to watch because they weren't talking about hands. But in that case, it's not actually a euphemism. It's, it's a core correlation because apparently big hands are supposed to mean big other things, right? So in that- Big gloves. That, yeah, that's right. Big gloves, I love, nice, very nice. So when we take euphemisms about things like the male anatomy, we borrow them from other other things around us that are not connected to us. So in Spanish, I mentioned they call them eggs, they call them huevos. Well, men don't have real eggs anywhere. <laughs> it's not part of it. They don't have other sorts of things that we use for that term. So I would find that the idea of a tail being a euphemism for the male member problematic just in terms of communication. Um, hmm. Not that it couldn't be done. It, it could be, and if that's what it is, that's what it is, uh, you know, fine, uh, doesn't bother me, but it does make me a little, it, it, it makes me think, I don't think people would normally do that sort of thing, because if, if you're gonna point to an animal and talk about its tail, you're not usually, hey, you check out that thing's tail, and you're like, oh, oh, you mean the other tail? No, there's, there's just one. <laughs> so so that's the, that's the one caveat that I think I have that still kind of lodges a, a, a decent objection against calling this, you know, uh, a euphemism. Mm. Is it just biologically, I think, is, is problematic. Okay. Well, let me let me see if I can convince sure. you. And I don't even, I'm not even convinced of the view, um, although there's certainly evidence mm. for it. But what is, I mean, what about feet? In the Bible, feet, feet is used um, euphemistically uh, to talk about other things. Oh, are they? Um, I didn't know about yes. feet. Mm -hmm. um, I mean, I, I know the word yes. thigh, 
uh, is often translated in English. And, and the first time my sister was like, you know, that's not thigh. And like, oh, okay. Yeah. So <laughs> Abraham says, put your hand under my stuff and swear to me. It's not thigh. I'm like, oh, okay. Uh, um, so yeah, I mean, I, I could be wrong on that. Well, so. Yeah. Well, I mean, if you, if you even acknowledge that the thigh thing, so doesn't that, um, cut across the argument the the reason you might doubt that because well no i, I wouldn't I, I think for that sort okay. of thing you know we have we have a term like groin right and groin actually means like the region that we're talking about yeah, so okay. like you can have a groin pull and it's not because your reproductive member has been injured it's some other muscles in the area so something like thigh or whatnot i mean we i, I do want to make sure that a, a language has um softer words that they're allowed to use because the terms often end up becoming harsh um, perspective-wise in the mm, language. Yeah. Um, again, with something like feet, uh, is, is that being used as a euphemism or is it like the comparison, like hands or, you know, the correlation? I'd have to take a look and uh, I'm open to correction on, on that. But again, you know, with an animal that has a tail and has just one tail to point out to it and be mm. talking about another bit of anatomy, uh, troublesome. Mm. Now, but it could work, you know, it, it, their rules, yeah. their rules for describing things, you know, don't have to be mine. I'm a 21st century modern person, right? I'm not an yeah. ancient Semite. I'm, I'm not in Job's world. And so they might have um, other, other rules by which they use their language. And again, um, we need to be sensitive to that. So if this is the best understanding that we have of the Hebrew based on, you know, good linguistic analysis, no skin off my nose. And, and I mean, you know, yeah. my nose, not something else. Okay, great. Uh, uh, one fun, interesting thing is the, the word um, that, you know, stiffens or extends as tell, which might, might even change things in this entire conversation yeah. is it's uh, that same word is used to, for desire and delight. Right. So, you know, some people have argued, hey, that's the like a reproductive thing because that kind of thing was like almost worshipped back then and and all that um but yeah i mean that just throws another wrench into the whole conversation of how we're supposed to understand that yeah the only word in that in that um, verse that's not contested is cedar like <laughs> that's the only one everybody else is like well cedar cedar oh, that's aside from yeah. that we got like desire and tail and mm, yeah. who knows the the word hene which in hebrew is is often used to behold mm -hmm. like hey you know a lot of people argue hey that's that's job was looking god was saying hey look at this guy over here so obviously he had to be a historical thing um i find there's two two interesting points to that argument so one of course hene isn't always used to literally mean like look at this physical thing that you mm -hmm. can see um so there's some ambiguity there um and two it's interesting that um like other um, like Egyptian gods and and other Mesopotamian gods often took the form of an animal. So there is a possibility that, hey, maybe even God is saying, hey, look at this. It's an, a normal looking ox or, or whatever, but it's 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 it, it, it embodies the the almost divinity, like chaosness, evil kind of thing. Do you have any thoughts on that one? Um, you know, I, I wouldn't object if if God is talking about, you know, showing Job something and then making a, a, a bigger point of it, right? Or, or saying this, this represents something more uh, than what's there. Um, or that he's giving him, you know, a, an idea of a, of a chaos creature 
that represents again you know the the forces of the world or the the things that stand opposed to god in their pride and, and things like that you see especially pride with uh, leviathan not so much with behemoth uh, one commentator said that uh, behemoth is really interesting because like it's super huge and apparently really powerful and dangerous and yet it doesn't do anything in the in the chapter um it, it just sits there and, and but that's kind of the point like it's so powerful that it can just sit there and nobody's going to mess with it because they know it's certain doom um except for god right who can approach it with his sword so uh and the implication probably there that he can you know that he'll slay it um as some type of enemy but a lot of that also hinges on the previous verses about you mentioned you know god preparing himself for divine conflict mm. different translations of that part of chapter 40 the, the first part of chapter 40 after job's initial response a lot of those don't read like um divine war uh preparation or you have to have some understanding of divine war preparation to, to see it so uh the modern you know 21st century american reader either might not see it because the bible translators don't think that's kind of what's going on and so they're writing about it in different sorts of ways or we don't recognize it because we're so so far divorced from that culture so um but yeah, yeah uh, as as somebody who has viewed behemoth at, and leviathan as physical historical animals that joe could look at and see but now is the point of saying well that's possible but it also is quite possible that they are um that they are Im image types of creatures that god is showing to job in order to show his mastery over both the powers of the world and the cosmic powers of evil all right now now where am i uh, i don't know <laughs> we'll see bring me on next week i've got a different opinion but um but right now actually i probably leaning more towards um more towards um powers don't say it don't no, more towards it. powers. It, it's fine to say it. It's all right, right? A young earth creationist can say that sort of thing. And it's it's not, again, not believing the Bible. It's, you know, what is the Bible trying to tell me here uh, about things? Mm. And um, and yeah. I think the case for this is, is stronger than I ever thought that it, it was before. I didn't know. I just was, because a lot of young earth creationist writing says, if you don't believe it's this way, it's because X, Y, Z motives and, you know, bad behavior and all that sort of stuff. And you have to kind of pull yourself out and and be willing to to read. And I think one of the reasons why this is something that I, I would harp on with my students quite a bit and, and push them to read perspectives that were different from their own um, is part of my own training. Right. I was, I was a young earth creationist who went through paleontological training uh, K through Ph.D. I was in state schools. I was never in a Christian school ever um, until I started teaching at Liberty University. Right, where I could finally kind of approach science in a way that I thought was probably the best, you know, at least to my abilities. Um, but I, I was absolutely immersed within old earth geology, within evolutionary theory, evolutionary views of paleontology, extinctions and, and whatnot, to the point where um, I would have to become maximally conversant in that, right? I had to be able to talk with other PhDs and professors and museum curators and grad students and whatnot at that level without, you know, having some sort of aneurysm or stroke every time I, I walked into a room because there's evolutionists here. Like, yeah, but these evolutionists are my friends. They're my colleagues. They're my professors. They're my office mates. They're my co-authors. They're all people for whom Christ died. 
people that Jesus loves beyond him, his own self, so much so that he would sacrifice for them. Um, so let's have that attitude in us, right? As the New Testament commands. But, but what that did is that trained me to be able to evaluate arguments on their own behalf and within their own world. And then to also step out of that world and say, what in here is, in thinking in terms of science, like what, what is well-established fact? What are the actual discoveries of, of real knowledge? What are reasonable inferences that are made from these things? Um, and what is more mm -hmm. speculation? You know, or, or what about the interpretations of these data uh, is strongly colored by one's worldview? Worldview is important. It's not the only thing, though. It's, it's a, I think, something that young Earth creationists need to hear. Worldview is not the only thing. Um, that doesn't determine everything. Because if the data can't feed back and influence your worldview, then what you're left is is just fideism. And that's something that I'd like to avoid. Um, at, at all costs. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, I, I really appreciate you saying that. That's 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 deep stuff. All right, yeah, I think that's a great way to end it, actually. Uh, so, uh, thank you so much for coming on here. I I really appreciate it. this. Has been a great conversation. I, I think a lot of people are going to get lots out of it. And um, yeah, once again, thank you. Um, one more time, uh, point people towards where they can find your stuff, any books. Any articles, anything that you want people to know oh, about? Well, thanks. Yeah, certainly if they're looking for science stuff, like my wife says, you can find us at cornerstone-edsupply.com. Uh, if you're looking for more stuff that I do, um, you know, a quick uh, search of YouTube will get you a few different videos, whether you're looking for a creationist to talk about uh, dinosaurs and feathers and birds and that whole fun controversy. I just had a paper published in Answers Research Journal <laughs> yeah. uh, this week. Uh, with Matt McLean as the, as the lead author. I was second author on that. We have three others, part of a back and forth between us and one of the scientists at uh, Answers in Genesis on that topic. Um, I've published in the International Conference on Creationism uh, this year with a, um, a synthetic perspective on Adam and human history uh, from the perspective of a young earth creationist. Uh, so you can find that uh, if you take a look for uh, International Conference on Creationism 2023. I've uh, published in that, cool. that volume before. I've published some things in Answers Research Journal or Journal of Creation. Um, so yeah, if you type in Marcus Ross, paleontologist, you'll find a few things of mine. You'll find a lot of people who don't like me uh, along the way. So that's all right. That's fine. There, Jesus died for them That's too. okay. Amen. Amen. All right. Thank you so much. Jack, uh, always for a pleasure. On Thanks for having me on. I appreciate it. Yes, sir. Yeah, awesome. One of these days we'll do this in person. It would be great. It would uh, be great. We live right down the street. Awesome. Yeah. But uh, yeah, thanks so much. I hope you have a good rest you of too. your night.